Heavenly Father, we thank you for that time of raising our voices to you, rejoicing in the glorious truths of the gospel. We thank you for your great sovereign mercy, for your glorious plan and purpose to show us love in your son. And now, Father, we ask that as we gather together around the word, your word, that the Holy Spirit would be ministering these truths to our hearts. Father, I ask that you would help me to communicate these things in a way that brings you glory and honor. Help me to get out of the way and let your word speak. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Again, I ask that the Spirit would be taking these truths and helping us not just to understand them, but to really feel the significance of these things for our lives. How they drastically transform us. Change the way we look at everything. And I pray that if there is anyone here today that hasn't come to that place, Father, of truly surrendering to you through the Son, that today, by your Spirit, the glorious truths of the gospel would penetrate their heart, give them eyes to see and ears to hear, and a heart that truly sees not only their own sinfulness, the sinfulness that we all confess in our hearts, but also the glorious forgiveness that is offered freely in the Son. These things we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I get started this morning, uh, I want to ask you this question. What comes to mind when you hear that word father? What comes to mind when you hear the word father? Now, you don't have to answer that out loud. But what images, what feelings, what thoughts come across the dashboard of your brain when you hear that word father? Maybe for some of you, all kinds of good thoughts come into your mind. You think of the loving and compassionate care of, of your dad, uh, his gentle strength, uh, his wisdom and guidance, his sacrifice to provide for your family. Maybe that's what comes to mind when you hear that word father. You think of the appreciation that you have for, for the love that your father showed you. Uh, a few years back, I was doing a memorial service, and I saw just a great picture of this, this fatherly love. Um, in the memorial service, we were, we were gathered together to remember the life of a godly man. He'd gone home to be with the Lord. And, and the world might have looked at this man's life and not seen a lot. Uh, he wasn't particularly wealthy. He didn't have a list of great accomplishments, worldly accomplishments in his life. He was actually a pretty simple guy, pretty, lived a pretty average life, just a kind of down-to-earth guy. Pretty average guy, at least by the world's standards. But in that service, his daughter stood up and spoke about him. And when she spoke about him, you saw how special he really was. He was an amazing dad. Uh, he, he led his family in love. He spent time with his kids. He sacrificed for them. He laughed with them. He wept with them. He shared his wisdom with them and encouraged them. And he repeatedly, he pointed them to Christ. And his children grew up experiencing on a daily basis a beautiful fatherly love. And so at that memorial service, when his adult daughter spoke, and herself a parent, when she spoke about her dad, even in her grief, she was beaming. She was beaming. She spoke in a way that celebrated his fatherly love. And I remember thinking to myself as I, I watched her speak about her dad, I remember thinking to myself, that's what I desire for my girls. I desire them to know and to delight in their father's love. And maybe that desire is what comes to mind, especially if you're a dad when you hear that word father. Maybe you think of what you aspire to be. Maybe when you hear that word father, what comes to mind is the smiling faces of your kids. And you think about all you desire to be for them. To be loving and strong and wise and gentle and true. Isn't it true, guys, that having kids and seeing them, it, it builds in us a desire to be something better. Amen? And so maybe that's what comes to mind when you hear that word, Father. What you aspire to be, all the things you desire to be for your kids. Or maybe when you hear that word, Father, what comes to mind isn't what you aspire to be, but maybe it's more of a negative word for you. You think of the things you failed to be, 
maybe your mind quickly takes you to the ways you haven't measured up as a dad, to the times of anger or selfishness or pride or apathy, those times when you chose to be something other than what your kids needed you to be. Maybe this word, Father, is, is a hard word for you to hear and to think about. And maybe it's a hard word for you because it doesn't necessarily bring to mind the ways that you failed, but it brings to mind the way someone, a dad, has failed you. Um, my dad left our family when I was 11 years old. And my wonderful mother, she bore the load. She worked amazingly hard to raise us kids. And Elisa, let's just be honest with everybody here. We weren't the easiest group of kids to raise, right? <laughs> Mom, we're sorry. <laughs> we did. We made things really rough on her. But she bore that load. And, and after my dad left, he was still involved in our lives. But I've got to be honest with you, it was a struggle it, it, it was a real struggle to watch the way my mom, what she was going through, and to watch what we were going through as a family, and not be disappointed, not be frustrated, honestly, with the choices and decisions that my dad made. It was hard. And sadly, that experience, that experience that we had as a family growing up, is a pretty common one in our culture today. Um, some would even say it's an epidemic in our culture. In the book, Fatherless America, author David Blankenhorn writes this. Listen to this. Breaks our heart to read this, but this is the reality. He said, a generation ago, an American child could reasonably expect to grow up with his father. Today, and he was writing that book in the early 90s, and things haven't gotten better since then. But he writes, today, an American child can reasonably expect not to. Fatherlessness is now approaching a rough parody with fatherhood as a defining feature of American childhood. This astonishing fact is reflected in many statistics, he writes. But here are the two most important. Tonight, about 40% of American children will go to sleep in homes in which their fathers do not live. And then here's the second. And before they reach the age of 18, more than half of our nation's children, more than half of our nation's children are likely to spend at least a significant portion of their childhoods living apart from their fathers. Never before in this country, he writes, have so many children grown up without knowing what it means to have a father. Sadly, in our modern culture, I think what too often comes to mind comes to, to the mind of too many when they hear that word father are thoughts of disappointment. Thoughts of disappointment. There are really too few who, who know that fatherly love that, like that daughter celebrated at her dad's memorial. But here's some good news. Whatever your experience with fatherly love has been in the past, it can most definitely be something that you joyfully experience now and on into the future. And that's what I get the pleasure of talking about this morning. This morning, as we continue our series on the Trinity, we're going to look at God the Father. And in God the Father, the scripture shows us A loving, wise, generous authority, a father whose loving, wise, and generous authority we experience in his son. We find a glorious father who gloriously loves us for the glory of his son. In God the Father, we find a a beautiful, true, perfect picture of fatherly love, of fatherly love. And brothers and sisters, we need to see that picture. We need to experience that love because, again, too many of us have a warped view of a father's love because of the warped love which we've received from our dads. Amen? We have a warped view of a father's love. We've got a tainted idea of what a father is all about. But in the Trinity, in the first person of the Godhead, in God the Father, we find the corrective to our warped view. We find the truth, really, the substance to which all the shadows of earthly fathers either pointed us or failed to point us. That fatherly love you might have experienced or that fatherly love you might aspire to or that fatherly love that, that maybe you have failed to show or, was, or someone failed to show you. That earthly fatherly love is just a shadow of a far greater reality, a far greater fatherly love. And we find the paradigm of fatherly love in God the Father. Again, In God the Father, we find a loving, wise, generous authority whose loving, wise, and generous authority we experience in his son. We find a glorious father who gloriously loves us for the glory of his son. And that's what we get to talk about this morning. But before we do that, 
I want to back up for a moment and remind you of the foundation that we've already laid in this series. And I want to do that because this foundation is important. It gives us the proper context for understanding the persons of the Godhead. It gives us the proper context for understanding this loving Father who gloriously loves us. Now, as I explained in the opening message in this series, the reality of the Trinity is the atmosphere of our Christianity. It's the reality in which we live. You might say, well, is this truth really important? This doctrine of the Trinity, is it really important? Yes, it is. Because it's the reality in which we live. It's the soil in which we plant it. It's, it's the air that we breathe. We are, as Christians, the people of the triune God. We are the people of the triune God. We are those who have been baptized, right, in the name of, right, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The reality of the Trinity is essential to our identity as Christians. And it's essential to our identity because this is the God who created us. This is the God who saved us. And this is the God with whom we are in a relationship every day. The triune God created us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit together brought about everything that is, including us. And the triune God has saved us. Father choosing, the Son atoning, and the Spirit giving new life. And every day as Christians, we are in fellowship with the triune God, being loved by the Father, led by the Son, and empowered by the Spirit. So all that to say, this doctrine of the Trinity isn't some peripheral truth to our Christianity. This is our reality. This is the atmosphere in which we live. But sometimes, as we talked about, we struggle because we're not sure how to speak about this quote-unquote atmosphere. We're not sure how to speak about this triune God with whom we are in a relationship. And we struggle because the God that we meet in the Bible is one. There is one true and living God. There is one who is immortal, one who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and infinite. There isn't a multiplicity or a plurality of gods. There is one God. Amen? Amen. But then as the gospel story unfolds, and we witness the advent of Jesus Christ, we come to see that this one God is also three. We meet the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all three are identified as God. All three are shown to be deity. So how do we process that? One God who is also three? What do we do with that? Well, some have suggested that we should think of it as one God wearing three different masks. They argue that in the Old Testament, God wore the mask of a father, just and stern. Then they say in the Gospels, he put on the mask of a son, humble and obedient. And lastly, they argue that in the church age, he has put on the mask of the spirit, transcendent and mysterious. Now, all that may sound helpful, but here's the problem. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. As we looked at week one in this study, the Bible shows us a baptismal scene in which God the Son is anointed for ministry by God the Spirit as we hear the delight of God the Father. All three persons are present and active in that scene. It's not one person playing three different roles, but three persons interacting with one another. And in John 17, as we looked at last Sunday, we got to listen in on God the Son praying to God the Father. We heard him talking about the way that the Father loved him. Remember this? Before the foundation of the world. And that wasn't some warped picture of God talking to himself and celebrating his self-love. That was a revelation of the persons of the Godhead in an eternal relationship with one another. An eternal relationship, as we looked at last week, an eternal relationship of glorious love. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not three manifestations of one person. They are three eternal persons who enjoy one essence, one nature. As I've explained in this series, God is three, and God is one, but God isn't three in the same way that God is one. When it comes to the God of the Bible, you have three persons and one essence or nature. There is one undivided substance, one immortal, all-knowing, all-powerful, infinite nature that is enjoyed, shared, possessed by three persons. God is one in nature and plural in persons. One, what, and three, you remember? Whose, there you go, you got the Dr. Seuss theological term. One, what, and three, whose. So when we begin now to talk about the persons of the Godhead, when we begin to talk about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, 
We need to understand that, that, that each one is God. Each one is deity, but there aren't three gods, and there isn't one God wearing three different masks. There are three distinct persons who fully possess one divine nature. And as we looked at last Sunday, these three persons share a glorious, eternal fellowship with one another. Remember last Sunday in John's Gospel, we got to peek in on what the Trinity was doing before everything. And you remember what they were doing before everything? Yeah, they were loving each other. When we saw the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existing before everything in this fellowship of glorious love. You see, from all eternity, the Father has been loving the Son in the love of the Spirit. God has been eternally satisfied and delighting in God. God who is love. He didn't make creation or embrace the work of redemption because he was lonely. He was looking for somebody to love. It's not the way it is. God isn't lonely. He isn't needy, but he is infinitely satisfied, infinitely happy. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit delighting in an eternal fellowship of glorious love. Isn't he? Isn't that beautiful? Those of you who were here last Sunday, and if you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage you to listen to the message from last Sunday. Isn't that beautiful to think that, that God isn't needy? Isn't like he's lonely? From all eternity, there's been this glorious fellowship of love. This glorious fellowship of love. And from that place, God is is infinitely satisfied. And from that place, absolute freedom, he chose to show us grace to bring us into that fellowship of love. Well, that's what we have talked about thus far. But as we begin now this Sunday to, to look especially at each person of the Godhead, this Sunday we'll look at the Father, next Sunday we'll talk about the Son, and the following Sunday we'll talk about the Spirit. I want to examine a little further the, the nature of their relationship. And I want to introduce you to a couple 50-cent words. Maybe it's better said because of inflation. A couple $5 words. When theologians talk about the relationships within the Godhead, the relationships within the Trinity, they speak of both the ontological Trinity and the economic Trinity. See, I told you, $5 words. Uh, the economic and the ontological. Now, what do theologians mean by these terms? Well, when they're speaking of the ontological Trinity, uh, they are speaking of the equality of the three persons of the Godhead. Ontological is simply a fancy way of saying what makes a person what they are. In other words, it's their, their nature, their being. So ontologically, the three persons of the Godhead are equal. They all share the same nature. All three fully possess, fully enjoy the divine nature. The Father doesn't have more of it than the Son, and the Son doesn't have more of it than the Spirit. All three are equal. They all three fully possess the divine nature. It's not like it's divided into thirds. They all three fully possess the divine nature, so they're all equal. All three are the same in glory, in majesty, in might, in holiness, in righteousness, and on and on we could go. All three are equal. But although they are equal in essence, equal in nature, they don't all possess the same roles. The Father is the Father. The Father isn't the Son or the Spirit. The Father is the Father. And as we'll see this morning, He is preeminent in rank. He is the one who plans and decrees He sends the Son. The Son submits to Him. The Son and the Spirit glorify Him. And they do that because those things are part of their roles. They don't do that because the Father is of greater value than they are or because the Father is more God than they are. No, they do that simply because those are the roles within the Godhead that they fill. And theologians call that the economic trinity. And that word economic here is not used to speak of finances. It's used speak of roles. Economic actually comes from a Greek word, oikonomikos, which was used by the Greeks to describe different roles in managing a household. So that's why they use this term economic. Now I bring all of that up because as we talk now these next three weeks about the persons of the Godhead, I want to caution you against assigning worth or value to them because of the role that they fill. I want to caution you against assigning worth or value to them because of the role that they fill. Each we will see, as we work through the next three weeks, each is truly God. Each is worthy of praise and worship and honor and glory. But in beautiful, harmonious love, love for one another and love for all of us, each person of the Godhead has embraced a specific function, a role. And those roles define the way that they interact with each other and with us, but they do not define the value of each person. Of the Godhead. It's like a husband and wife in marriage, and Paul actually uses this analogy in 1 Corinthians. But it's like a husband and wife in marriage. Both spouses, they have separate roles, right? But those roles don't define each person's value, right? Amen. Amen. 
What defines each person's value? Each person is made in the image of God. And that defines their value, but they function in separate roles. And with the Trinity, each person of the God is truly God, worthy of praise and worship, but each person also embraces a role, a role for the glory of the triune God and for the good of God's people. So the persons of the Trinity are equal in value but differ in role. So having laid all that foundation now, now let's begin to talk about the person of God the Father. And the Bible makes very clear that the Father is God. He fully possesses the divine nature. And both Jesus and his apostles repeatedly taught this. Let me just quickly give you a couple of examples of them showing us this. First, remember how Jesus taught the disciples to pray? What's the opening line of the Lord's Prayer? Yeah. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So as we pray to God, what did Jesus teach us? We can call him Father, right? Our Father who is in heaven. And do you remember Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well? Do you remember what he said to her about worship? This is from John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship who? The Father. Then he said, You, speaking to this woman who was a Samaritan, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship who? The Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, does that mean we shouldn't worship Jesus? No, just read through the book of Revelation, and you'll see a lot of worship of Jesus. But what this text is showing us is the deity of the Father from the lips of Jesus. And there are a lot of other texts we could look to in which we see this truth confessed by Jesus. And we also see it confessed by Jesus' apostles. As you go through their letters, repeatedly they open their letters with greetings from God the Father. Uh, the apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, his, his protege, he begins his letter this way. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from who? God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in 2 John, verse 3, John the Apostle writes, grace and mercy and peace will be with us from who? God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. And then over in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter gives the persecuted church this greeting. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then look at what he says. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And here's his greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now here in 1 Peter in this greeting we find a, a beautiful Trinitarian expression. In it we see not only the deity of the Father but also what I'll call the distinction of the Father. Peter, Peter identifies three separate persons. And notice, look at what he's doing here. He's focusing on the aspects of each one's role. The Father does what? Foreknows. He predestines. The Spirit does what? Sanctifies. And the Son leads us and cleanses us by his blood. So here through Peter's greeting, we see that he understood that the Father is God, but also that the Father is distinct from the Son and the Spirit. He is a distinct person with his own role. So now let's begin to talk about the Father's role. And as we examine this, here, I'm just going to have a little confession. I know as we're going through this, and I'm using the PowerPoint for this, there might be a tendency for this to start to feel like a class. Um, My prayer is that as we walk through this, you'll see the glory of the Father, and it will lead you to worship. It will lead you to your heart to be humbled and overwhelmed by the greatness of our Father. I want you to see the glory of his unique role, and to see his glory in that unique role. So I know, like I said, it might feel a little bit like a class, but I'm praying. I've been praying all week for you, and I'm asking the Spirit to do work this morning to make this not just a class, but a, an exercise that leads us to worship. All right? So as we go through this, I'm praying that, that you just see the glory of the Father and that you appreciate, as we unpack this, what true fatherly love looks like. What true fatherly love looks like. So let's talk first about his glorious position. And I want you to understand that what the Bible shows us is that the Father is first in rank in the Trinity and overall creation. As author and theologian Bruce Ware explains, 
He writes this, the father in his position and authority is supreme among the persons of the Godhead. Now again, he is not supreme, he is not preeminent in rank because he is more God than the Son or the Spirit. They are all ontologically, remember that term, equal. But this position of preeminent in rank is a role which God the Father fills. He is the authority, that's the role that he has, he is the authority over all. And we see this authority taught in a number of passages. So I want to show you two of them this morning. One from the Old Testament and one from the New. So take your Bibles now and turn over to Psalm 2. One too far. Now I have to hit everything again. There we go. As I said last week, if I'm just going through passages and you don't need to turn there, I'll put them up here. But if we're going to turn and kind of dig into a passage, I want you to open your Bibles, okay? I don't want to fall into that trap of going, well, I'm not going to bring my Bible to church on Sunday because it'll be all up there on the screen. I want you to bring your Bibles. So Psalm 2. And here in Psalm 2, this is a staggering picture that we see. We see a picture here of the reign of God. And look at how Psalm 2 begins. It begins with this question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What are we seeing here? Rebellion, right? We're seeing the rebellion of humanity. We want to go our own way. That is the reality of the fallen sinful heart. Amen? Amen. But how does God respond to such rebellion? Does it cause him to tremble and shake in his boots? Does it cause him to fill with fear and anxiety and worry? No, not at all. Look at his response, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens does what? Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, God does not tremble and quake. Instead, he responds in judgment. And he says that he will judge and he will rule through, what does it say? My, my king. But here's some important questions for us. Who is the he speaking there in verse 5? And also, who is this king who will be used to subdue sinful humanity? Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my what? Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss or do homage to the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, ultimately what this psalm is describing is God the Father ruling through God the Son. You see, it's the Father who sits in the heavens and laughs. He is the one who has that place of supreme authority. And from that place, from that role, he sends the Son to judge the nations and rule over the world. And this understanding of this relationship between the Father and the Son, the Son ruling over the nations under the authority of the Father, this understanding of that relationship is repeated throughout the New Testament. Find it in Acts chapter 4. As the church gathers there to pray, and they actually quote this passage, and they interpret it as the Father sending the Son. You see it in Hebrews chapter 2. You read a powerful picture of it in Revelation 19. And you also see it in 1 Corinthians 15. So take your Bibles now, we'll put that part up, and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at that passage. 1 Corinthians 15. And this is a really important passage when it comes to understanding this place of preeminent authority, uh, which the Father holds. Now here in chapter 15, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, here in chapter 15, Paul's teaching on the resurrection. There are some there in the church in Corinth who are denying a literal bodily resurrection. So Paul's teaching on that. And as he teaches on Christ's resurrection and then, then our resurrection at the coming of Christ, it leads Paul to talk about the end. The, the culmination of redemption. And look at what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 24. Paul says, Then comes the end, when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is who? What? Yeah, death. But when that last enemy is destroyed, when when the full resurrection of the dead has taken place, to whom is Christ going to deliver the kingdom? Look again at verse 24. To who? To God the Father. Yeah, and the Son will do that because the Father is preeminent in rank. And Paul makes that point clear in the very next thing that he writes. Look at verse 27. For God, and that's the way the ESV translates it, but it's literally, in the Greek, it's literally he. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. And what Paul is saying here, as he quotes from Psalm 8, is that God the Father, that's the first he that he's talking about, has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. That's the second he. His feet. Paul's talking about what Psalm 2 describes. But then look at where that leads Paul. Look again at verse 27. For he, the Father, has put all things in subjection under his, Christ's feet. But, Paul says, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that is the Father, is accepted, is excluded, who put all things in subjection under him. See, Paul's explaining that the Father is not part of the all things that would be put under the feet of Christ. And that is because the Father is preeminent in rank. So Paul writes, verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, that is to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, that is the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You see, in the culmination of redemption, the restoration of the universe, it will be clear that even God the Son is in subjection to God the Father. And the whole universe, this is an amazing thought, the whole universe will reflect the order of the Godhead. The whole universe will reflect the order of the Godhead. And it's not an order of value or worth. It is simply a reflection of the glorious roles of the Godhead. The Father is preeminent in rank. He is the Father. And by way of application, let me just say, dads, that's the way it's supposed to be. You are the leader. And it's not because you're the most valuable member of your family. If you think that, Meet me after the service because we need to have a conversation. It's not because you're the most valuable member of your family. It's simply because that is the role that God has assigned you to be the loving leader of your family. And as you do that, you are reflecting the reality of our triune God. Take a moment and think about that. We want to just, well, those roles are just traditional. We want to toss those things out. But do you realize we are displaying the reality of God with that? And it's not about value. It's not about worth. Well, you're in charge because you're the most valuable. No. It's because that's the role that God has assigned you. A role that reflects the order of the Godhead. And God the Father, as the preeminent one, and this is such glorious good news, he leads from that position of authority as a generous one. As a generous one. Take a moment and think about if it wasn't that way. What if this glorious and supreme one, the one who stands as the authority in all of the universe, was cold and selfish and stingy? Some of you have known dads like that, right? They weren't givers, they were takers. Let me ask you, what was it like living in that house? What was it like living under their authority? But that's not what it's like, praise God living under the authority of our glorious Heavenly Father. Here's what he is like. Over in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples about prayer. And in chapter 7, verses 7 and 11, he asks them, he, says, he tells them, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For... Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. He's teaching about prayer. But why is it this way? Why is there this asking, seeking, and knocking? Is this some kind of magic formula, you know? You ask twice, you knock three times, and you get what you want? Is that what Jesus is teaching? Is that the way prayer works? No, why does he say this? Ask, seek, and knock. Look at what he goes next. Or which of you, if he asks for a fish... Will give, if his son asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Or sorry, or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Let me ask you, dads, 
Is that what you would do to your kids? Now some of you, because you're jokesters, you might give them a rubber snake. But, but in reality, which of you, if your son asks him for bread, you're going to give him a stone? Here, chew on this. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him something that's going to harm him, a serpent. And look what Jesus says next. If you then, who are evil, and we are in comparison with the goodness of God, the holiness of God, if you then who are evil know how to good, give, good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will who? Your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. See, Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, because the preeminent one, the Father in his authority, is generous. And he delights to give good gifts to his children. You know how it feels, dads, to give a good gift to your kids. And if you, and I'm saying this from the authority of Scripture, if we, being wicked, understand that, and we do that, how much more is God, who is holy and just and righteous, giving good and generous gifts? And it's not just an occasional generous gift that the Father gives. Listen to the way James puts it. This is James 1.17. This is awesome. Every, look at the text, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from who? The Father. The Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's not like, well, should I take this gift or not? I don't know if I can trust him. He might be being tricksy. Is that the way it is? No. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Take a moment and really think about this. Every good gift comes from who? A father. Think about that. The delight that you find in your children. Even when they come running to you and they got snot coming out of their nose and breakfast still on their shirt and they want to hug. But that delight that you find in your children. The comfort of the embrace of your spouse. I was having a rough day today, and I was kind of being a little bit of a grouch. I know for those of you who know me, you couldn't imagine that ever happening. (laughs) But my wife picked up on it, and instead of knocking me upside the head, which is a good loving approach sometimes, she gave me a hug, said, I love you. Ultimately, where does that come from? My father. It's a gift from my father. It's a gift from my father. The joy of friendship, the pleasure of a sunrise, a laugh, a good book, on and on and on we could go. All the little blessings that you enjoy every day of your life, they're all gifts coming down from the generous Father who is over all. But that's not even the half of it. One author put it, and I love the way he put this. He said, where does every good gift originate? From the Father. And then he asks, even the gift of the Son? Even the gift of the Son who provides our salvation? And what's the answer? Yes. Yes, He is a gift from the Father. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Then he says, and the gift of the Spirit who works in our hearts to transform us, to minister to gift us to minister in the body of Christ. Yes, he too is from the Father. Acts 1.4. Jesus describes the Spirit as the promise of the Father. Every good gift in all of life, including the Son who died to save us and the Spirit who transforms us, every good gift comes ultimately from the Father. Our Father, who is in heaven, sovereign over the universe, and this is such good news, is the preeminent giver. The preeminent giver. He is gloriously, wonderfully generous. And all all these good gifts that he gives, they don't come from the Father simply by happenstance or happy accident. There is a, a plan and a purpose it's not like the father's running around, you know, like some clown in a parade, just, just tossing candy indiscriminately, just tossing his gifts out there indiscriminately into the crowd, and he's just hoping a blessing hits you in the head. That's not the way it is. That's the wrong picture. What the Bible shows us is that the father is actually the sovereign architect of all things. That's the right picture. Again, this is from Bruce Ware. 
He writes, The Father is the grand architect, the wise designer of all that has occurred in the created order, from initial creation to ultimate consummation, and everything that happens in between. Let's see if we can get this to go. There we go. It is God the Father who is the architect, the designer, the one who stands behind all that occurs as the one who plans and implements what he has chosen to do. And again, we learn this from the very lips of Jesus. Again, think about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom, your kingdom come. Preeminent authority. And then what does he say? Your, whose will? The Father's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about the Father's will. It's all about his design and his purpose. And we should delight in this. We should delight in the Father's design. We should delight in his glorious sovereign purpose. The Apostle Paul did. Take a moment and turn in your Bibles now to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to walk us through this great doxology from Paul. Ephesians chapter 1. And as you're turning there in Ephesians chapter 1, I may share with you that years ago, I went through this chapter marking up the pronouns. There's a lot of pronouns in this doxology. I went through this chapter marking up these pronouns, making sure that I understood which person of the Godhead Paul was speaking about in each section of this great doxology. And I went through this and I looked at how Paul spoke about the different persons of the Godhead throughout Ephesians and his other letters. So I did this exercise of walking through, marking up the pronouns, making sure I understood which person of the Godhead Paul was talking about. So as we read through this together, what I want to do is point those, what the pronouns are, who the pronouns are pointing to so that you can make sure that you are tracking with what Paul is saying here. So let's start verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God, and what does he say? Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now that that first statement there is kind of like the, the topic sentence, the pregnant sentence. Everything is kind of packed into that. He is praising who? God the Father, who has blessed us where? In Christ, okay, so the Father acting, Christ is the sphere of blessing, okay? So now watch this. Verse 4, even as he, who's the he? The Father chose us in him, where's the him? Christ, okay, so you're tracking with this. Even as he, the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, before the Father. In love, verse 5, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his, the Father's will, to the praise of his, the Father's glorious grace with which he, the Father, has blessed us in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Jesus Christ. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his, the Father's grace, which he, and again he's praising the Father for what the Father has purposed to do, which he, the Father, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his, the Father's will, according to his, the Father's purpose, which he, the Father, set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in who? In Christ. That's the sphere. In Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, as you do that little exercise, what you come to discover is that Paul is teaching that the Father is the sovereign architect. He is the one who chooses. He is the one who predestines. All of this is happening according to the purpose of his will. But again, notice where it is happening. What is the sphere of action, the center of the working in the Father's plan? Paul keeps saying it's all happening where? In Christ. That's the sphere. It's all happening in Christ. Father, the Father has blessed us in Christ. He has chosen us. Where? In Christ. And in Christ we have redemption. And all of this is happening. This is where it all comes together. We're coming to a head here. All of this is happening in Christ because of the goal of the Father's plan. Look again at what Paul says starting in back in verse 9. And this is amazing. He says, making known to us the mystery, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his, the Father's will, according to his, the Father's purpose, which he, the Father, set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, 
things in heaven and things on earth. You see, the goal of everything for the Father is that it would all be centered in his Son. The goal of everything for the Father is that it would all be centered on the Son. It's the Father's sovereign delight to have all things united in who? In Christ, in the Son, in the Son that the Father loves. The Son that the Father loves. And here we, are, we step back into what we looked at last week. The truth that the Father has from all eternity gloriously loved the Son. This, this is the heart of his role as a father. His love for the Son. He is a father who loves the Son. And he loves him perfectly. The Father delights in his Son. And he delights in him so much that from his place of preeminent authority... From his glorious generosity, in his wise plan, the Father purposed that all things, both creation and the work of redemption, be centered upon his Son, the one that he loves. That's the kind of Father the Heavenly Father is. He is a loving, wise, generous authority who delights in his Son. He delights in his Son. And that's good news for all of us. You see, Paul is showing us here, what Paul is showing us here is that the Father's love for the Son overflows to all of us. That's why Paul's praising the Father. Again, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done what? See that there in the text? Who has blessed us, where? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing. You see, the love of the Son by the Father overflows to all of us for our blessing. For our blessing. You see, in love for his Son, the Father chose to give us to his Son as a people for his Son. In love for his Son, the Father chose to give us To his son as a people for his son. In love for his son, the father predestined us to be adopted in this family. That the son might be the firstborn, the the preeminent rank among brothers and sisters. Those who share the humanity that God the son took upon himself. And in love for his son, the father purposed to give us redemption. In love for his son, the father purposed to give us redemption. Because it wasn't a redemption that you and I can earn. Amen? We couldn't do enough to earn it. It was a redemption that only comes through what? The finished work of Jesus Christ. So that for eternity, we would all sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to the delight for all eternity of the Father. You see the glory of the Father? You see the glory of the Father? The glory of the Father is in the love for His Son. A love so immense and so measureless that it overflows by generous design to envelop all of us. God is a gloriously loving Father. He is the Father who is supreme in authority. But unlike so many earthly fathers... He doesn't use that authority in a cold, stern, selfish fashion. Instead, in glorious generosity, with wisdom and with purpose. He uses that position of authority to lavish his love upon his son and upon all those whom he has given to his son. The father is a person of generous, infinite love. And as 1 John 2.23 declares, everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Through faith in Jesus Christ, this Father that we've been talking about this morning is your Father. Is your Father. And His fatherly authority, His fatherly generosity, His fatherly wisdom and purpose, His fatherly love is all yours. It's all yours. It's all yours because by faith... And by design, you are in the Son. And there's nothing that this Father delights in more than his Son. Would you pray with me? Father, as we take this time this morning and 
try to understand the greatness and glory of who you are and your overwhelming love. We pray that you would, by your spirit, drive these truths into our heart, that you would produce in us worship. As we see you who, who are the Father, you who are preeminent in rank, you who stand above all, and not using that position like so many of us are tempted to do, but using that position to overflow your generosity, your love, and show all creation the delight you have in your son. And Father, we praise you for in your mercy and grace choosing to give us to your son, to make us his people, to adopt us into this family that that all the blessings that are Christ, all the things you delight to pour out upon your son would be ours as well. And we don't deserve any of it. Because of our rebellion, our sin, we deserve to be outside of this family forever. We we deserve to be separated from all the good gifts that you give. But you are so gracious and so kind. You're so generous. We thank you that in your sovereign mercy, you chose to love us in the Son. We thank you that we have a Father like you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here this morning, some who, who I know have struggled with disappointment from their earthly father, they struggled in being a dad. And I pray that you would just encourage them. That they might know they have a father like you. Wise, generous, loving, good. Thank you. That though our earthly fathers may fail us, you never do. And we can always depend on you. We praise you, Father. These things we bring before you in the name of your son whom you love. Amen.